Welcome to DigiBarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. This piece is entitled Homebrew at 30, DigiBarn Radio's coverage of the Homebrew Computer Club 30-year retrospective, a special panel featuring original Homebrew Computer Club members. This event was hosted by DigiBarn curator Bruce Damer during the Vintage Computer Festival at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, on November 5th, 2005. Let's listen. Okay, well, welcome to the Homebrew at 30, the uh, 30th uh, anniversary retrospective of the Homebrew Computer Club, which the birthday passed on 5-5-2000, no, 5-3-5-2005. And so that, that was the first meeting of the club, and this is the first newsletter that came out after that meeting. And it got thicker and thicker as time went by, but it always had this really good production value. I don't know how you guys did that. Um, uh, in the time with no laser printing and whatever, it looks great. Um, what I'm going to do is just do a really brief introduction and then let you guys uh, get the full breadth and scope of this group. Uh, so I'm going to just flick through a few things here. Homebrew at 30 brought to you by the four uh, good institutions up there. Um, where, what was my story in this? Well, pretty much nothing. Uh, <laughs> this is Bruce at 13 in Sunnyville with my friend Chuck Jensen. And uh, there we are at Stanford in May of 75, but I didn't even know there was a homebrew meeting. I didn't know anything about the homebrew club. So I wasn't part of it. So what did I do? Well, I found out about the homebrew club years later moved to Silicon Valley, actually near Silicon Valley in Boulder Creek, kind of over the hill from where Waza lives, found myself having bought a farm, and you can explain this to other people. Um, so I filled the farm full of vintage computers. We have pigs too. In fact, one of them was sick this morning, and that's why I got, we got here just now. Uh, so that's a, a barn full of computers. It's all sort of boot up, and it's kind of like a gigantic garage. And there's the DigiBarn. So I, I built this DigiBarn museum so that I could meet all these cool club folks. <laughs> and here they are. So that's Michael Hawley, Ben and uh, Ben and now he's got an exhibit upstairs, and Bob Lash, Ben and now, and the rest uh, you're seeing. And we're going to actually try to call uh, Len Schustek at some point. Uh, so the club meeting itinerary, we're going to have a random access uh, period, if Lee is all right with that, where anybody can stand up and, and say what they, what they please. That's not random access, that's mapping. That's mapping. It leads to random access, which is the rest of your life. The mapping. <laughs> and so we're going to do this little introduction, and panelists will weigh in on a free-form manner on what did the club mean to me and my life. How did it, these are very weighty topics. How did it impact the world? What profound, funny, or stupid things happen at club meetings? I'm sure there were stupid things. And what is the state of innovation today compared to those days when it was all just being done uh, from the root? And uh, the next one is, is the club alive today? Or is, in fact, the entire internet the Elmbrook Computer Club? Good question. And uh, is our sound going? Oh, our sound's still there. Uh, Lee will show his 10-minute piece. Now it's off. Now it's off. Now it's, now it's on. back on. Looks like the old This is yeah. Uh, Lee will show his 10-minute piece. 
And then we're going to have a wonderful, oh, don't stay away from these switches. Um, this is, we're going to show Eric Klein's Alpair 8800 playing, we hope, uh, Fool on the Hill, if any of you know that reference. And with this tinny 1970s uh, AM radio, original AM radio. And uh, he will then be presented the Scripps Phillips Screw Award for finding a use for something previously thought useless which no one was able to get because of the applause in the last, the last time this happened. Did somebody bring a fit, strip Phillips screw? I didn't bring one. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> if we keep the schedule, which we won't, uh, at some point, somebody's going to wave a threatening object to get order, and we're going to end up having a cake cutting. If we can, we'll take the cake. Um, people will mill about, and confusion will prevail. Bruce and Lee will be whisked off to do judgings in, in chains. And at 9 o'clock tonight, Waz will finally get done talking to people and signing their Apple II covers. <laughs> let me just say, um, we kind of anticipated people would do that. We're going to set up a table uh, upstairs in the exhibit hall. Waz was very kind to agree to let people or line up orderly so we don't have a big mob scene. So we'll do that in the exhibit hall uh, after the talk. Um, what the heck was a club meeting like? Well, it's kind of like this, I think, a little bit, maybe a little more raucous and... No. No? Okay, well. I maintained order. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to play a, play a little piece here, uh, which you probably won't be able to hear, but... The nerds formed clubs to talk about their new toys. One of the first was the Homebrew Computer Club, which met on Wednesday evenings in the hall rented from Stanford University in Silicon Valley. Presiding over mere anarchy was Lee Felsenstein, who pretended to be in charge. Kind of, I think the only uh, the only footage the only footage of the club that I know of that's on film. I, I, I don't know of any other actual movie set footage of the club. Uh, the club also is best known uh, through its newsletters, and uh, thanks to Len Kusek and Michael Hawley and others, we have a three-year collection of club newsletters on the DigiBarn website at www.digibarn.com, and thanks to Evan Koblenz, they're now being OCR'd into text. Bruce, the cutting out is feedback going through the radio, so move away from the speaker. Oh, that should be good. So, anyway, uh, that's uh, kind of the introduction, and... So, be careful of the out here. Uh, I guess it's off, right? The sound is off? Is the sound yeah, completely off? off? Completely off. Oh, dear. Uh, it's a the small room. <laughs> Hello! No. <laughs> <laughs>
working on the diaphragm. Pete from the diaphragm. Oh, here. Um, anyway, that's it, and uh, we're going to uh, we're going to ha- see the Altair speaking better than I am a little bit later. Uh, and uh, this is the cake you'll see, and that's about it. Uh, but what I want to do is is open up the event to actually, you know what? Let's see this. You guys ever seen this? No. This is uh, this is. <laughs> <laughs> This is an incredible, do you guys remember Rich Today? He, he wrote a lot of books. Well, this is kind of amazing. This is Rich Today's car- comic book called Finite State Fantasies. And it's all about the culture of the homebrew uh, kind of thing. And this is Arnold getting his homebrew kit in the mail. He's coming through the house and he locks his family out of the whatever room he's gone into, the living room. And he solders the thing together day and night and uh, without eating or sleeping. And he pulls his user interface over. (laughs) And now he's possessed because, as you can see, he can code. He's got the power to code. And so the professor says, as if possessed, Arnold drove himself staying at the keyboard day and night, not stopping to eat or sleep. Does it sound familiar? Uh, at last, his alternate reality was completed. <laughs> I'm in the business of 3D stuff on the net, so this is really kind of... And he goes, and of course, uh, there's this ideal girl and his ideal life also there. And now we've come almost the end of the story. Which do you choose to believe? Uh, where could he have gone? Is he, you know, what are the parents doing there? Has <laughs> he expired or has he gone into cyberspace? So the, the great uh, sort of message of this cartoon book of the summer of 1976 is it's just another tool. Use it. Don't let it use you. <laughs> now you show that back. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. So um, I guess, do you want to try doing yours or do you want to, do we want to keep, or do we want to uh, do? Well, I think I should because it's, uh, as everybody should know by now, uh, who's looked into it, the club, the founder of the club was Fred Moore, together with Gordon French. And basically, I don't think Gordon would have done it without Fred. Fred uh, hung around the community computing center in uh, Menlo Park, which was this strange place where they had uh, teletype terminals on time-sharing systems, and I think also PDP-8 running basis, so kids could play games and computers, which was an insane idea at the time. Um, and so Fred sort of attached himself to this and began talking to everybody who came in and getting their names on a, uh, on a list. And he supposedly wanted to uh, um, organize a hardware club or something, learn hardware, computer hardware, digital hardware. And then came the Altair, and one sample was sent out to the uh, People's Computer Company, which is very closely affiliated with the there had been a spin-up of that, and it made the rounds, and uh, then I heard from uh, Bob Marsh, my friend who was interested in this stuff, that there's this meeting in Menlo Park, and uh, I think he showed me this little half-page Xerox thing that uh, Fred had just turned out himself, calling the meeting of the amateur computer group or something like that. And so we went down there, and it was Fred in Gordon's garage, 
and 30 of us. I somehow seem to think it was 19 when I got filmed for this. I don't know what went through my head. So let's, uh, there's been a uh, film made about Fred. Fred died in 1997 in an auto accident in Arizona. And there was a memorial service conducted in Berkeley, at which I spoke and many other people spoke, and most of us were surprised at all the others. Uh, Gordon French was there. And he came away saying, now I realize why, in his view, the FBI was trailing him after that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Markley Morris, who is here, has made a film and, uh, and has DVDs of it, uh, Walking Rainbow, in honor of Fred, and recounting his life. And he filmed at the, outside the memorial service, and people gave their stories. And there's a lot more. So I've got a copy of it here, and I, can show, I want to show about eight minutes worth of it in about four excerpts, if possible, if you will indulge me. Um, and that, that film will be screened today at 4 o'clock in the screening room on the opposite side of the exhibit hall and tomorrow at 4 o'clock as well. Same place. In its entirety, 28 minutes. There will be a brief pause here while we switch computers. Slider to get to the time. Now, what about audio? Is there, you're going to have to mic the speaker on that one, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, have we got a mic? Well, that's not working either. <laughs> <laughs> Should we wait uh, until later when we do have a mic? It's Murphy's Law. 30 years from now, all this will be laid out. That one doesn't work, but it's not very strong. It's supposed to work, but it's not. Nothing is. I think it's the DNA, I don't know. Two, two minutes, if I can 
were not, uh, oh boy, daddy took me on a picnic, but it was, we went on the continental walk when I was eight years old, and I loved it. It was great. I mean, we got to spend time walking and talking and meeting people and hanging out. And just a little bit hitchhiking. You know, it was, it was like there would be the side of the road and, and say, oh, shit, hitchhiking, terrible. But no, it was really fun. I was with my dad, and we sing songs and tell stories and and uh, talk about stuff. I like I like that a lot. They took him out of jail, brought the judge, and the judge said to Fred. Okay, I'll make you a deal. If you tell me your name, we'll drop all the charges and let you go. Yeah, I think it could be completely healthy. We would have said no. <laughs> but he said, okay, uh, I'll do that compromise. But I often thought if uh, 5,000 people who were arrested at Seabrook had failed to give their name, to the police and they failed to cooperate like Fred did. What were the implications of that in the In nineteen seventy five, the first personal computer kit, the Altair, which Fred always pronounced as all par, arrived at the market. Nobody much knew what to do with it. And Fred used his list and uh, garage donated by Gordon French to I uh, called the first meeting of what became the Homebrew Computer Club. This was a group that started out with perhaps 19 people in a garage looking at a computer that didn't do anything and wondering what we could do with it. But among our number was Steve Wozniak and several other people who are not as well known, but who wound up running companies. Fred got the meeting going. He published a newsletter for several issues. He very often stand up in front of the meetings and say, we really ought to think about what we can do as a group. We practice sharing information, learning things from each other, teaching things to each other. And when somebody built something, he was expected to show us all what it was and to keep nothing secret. Uh, this became what is now known as open architecture. Fred, I think, was perhaps the only person, well, the only person I knew of who could have convened this meeting and maintained such an unselfish ethos. I don't know quite how he did it, but he always made it clear that he was really interested in the, the good that computers could be used for and the good which they would, could bring out in people. You know, I can't say that personal computers are now an idealistic proposition, but the fact that they were for the first two years set a course which has been maintained and there's uh, there's much more yet to be done and I think Fred's spirit will be there as we do it. The long time the big dogs were getting more and more assured. When he started to see him for many years after this imposed by him. It was about 1990 which I showed up for and actually walked several miles that day. I was watching his round-the-world walk. 
and I didn't expect to see him for many years afterwards. But as it turned out, the Gulf War broke out, and that put his walking plans on hold. Fantastic. I'm searching here for. We certainly did have an angel come to our house unawares. Fred and I used to love to brainstorm about different ideas and things that we were working on, and he was working on his stoves. And I think there's probably parts of the 40 stoves out in the yard. As we know, wood is scarce in the world, and today more than ever. About five million people in the world use wood of some sort to cook with. And I've designed these stoves to be used in third world countries. These are prototypes of different designs using different principles. I basically I wanted to use scrap material to design the stoves. And he was always very excited. And that's the one thing I remember with Fred, because it took me a long time to pick out who he really wants. He never really we'll stop it there. will be shown in its entirety at 4 o'clock, is it? Uh, yeah, 4 o'clock. And I don't know where. So I think uh, next we have, we're actually on good time. Uh, we were going to call Lynn Houston to have him say some words, but I'm not sure you'd have to dial that speakerphone. Because Lynn, Lynn couldn't be here today due to a family function. Let's so see let's see if we can work. find Lynn wherever he is. Now, Lynn Shustek, uh as my understanding goes, you guys can clarify that he helped you guys get the Slack auditorium for the club, or the Stanford the Stanford Auditoria, I guess the AI lab, and because Len was wasn't Len at Slack at the time. Uh, AI labs was at the DC Power Labs. Uh, we had one meeting there. One meeting there. Oh, and that's then, right. That's right. I remember. Yeah, Len. Len told me that he he was able to score. Uh, the room, and he's, of course, helped us store this room here today, too. Um, let's see. Uh, which auditorium? It's Churchill. Okay. Churchill Auditorium. It should be noted that this is how things happened at home, but people just did them. We did this on purpose. We wanted to recreate and no, nobody bothered taking credit or anything. And we had the, the counterexample of a Southern California Computer Society going at the same time, which dissolved in uh, political bickering uh, a couple of years after it started. And they were doing everything by the book with Robert's Rules of Order and officers and you know, all sorts of things. So we had a good example, and the Homebrew Club went 11 years. And I think one thing we can do while they're looking for the phone is maybe we can you want to uh, do do what we need to do? Uh, you know, uh, Good point. Let's see if it's working first. No, it'll be well. Oh, that. Okay, sorry. Oh, it's hard to find. Yeah. Are we running? Nope. There it is.
This is Steve Dompier's program. When Dompier demonstrated, it sounded better than this. He was using a weather radio up at 162 megahertz, for whatever that's worth. Might have been a different thing. But the bagpipe effect with the drone is really good. <laughs> <laughs> So this was the first thing the elder actually did? No. In public, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's not an improvement. Quite possibly, if you took the radio away and held the mic up, it would pick up enough. Right, that's a joke. Let's go try there's a great deal of art in this. Steve Dompier tapping to get out. <laughs> wow. Oh, goodness. It works. <laughs> sort of. I can turn the machine off. That might kill it. Oh, okay. Yeah, kill it. Okay. I don't think that's it. Yeah. That's okay. You're getting some. Try it. Okay. Is that? For this? Is that a One? trio? You can hear the it's a trio. Well, it has to be a trio. Uh, put it on the speakerphone and then the <laughs> it mic. It is. Uh, the, the mic needs to be on the back of the phone. Ah, good point. Ah. <laughs> 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 Len? Hi, this is Lee Felsenstein. Hello? Hello? 
Len, can you hear me? Oh, wait a second. I got something wrong with my mic. No. Are you muted? Uh, Len? <laughs> Len? <laughs> Len? <laughs> this is Lee. Len, this is Lee. Len, can you hear me? <laughs> Lee Felsenstein. You're, uh, you're on speakerphone. <laughs> At the, uh, give me a round of applause, folks. <laughs> Uh, other people 
worked on uh, inexpensive computers since the mid-60s. My first program was for a vacuum tube machine, the OEM 650, in 1963. So I was part of the big computer establishment. But it, but it was clear that that establishment was making a mistake of treating microprocessors like toys rather than as the next generation of computers. Uh, the Homebrew Club was really a way to show off what could be done with them, that this really was the next wave of computing, not, not just uh, sideshow. I think that's why Slack encouraged it and allowed the meeting to happen there. They also did more official projects. In Slack, we started a microprocessor lab, which was a, a more official way to help spread microcomputing into the engineers and the physicists who were still resisting and doing things the old-fashioned way. But the other part of the revolution, which I think is the more important part, is that suddenly everybody could have a computer. At that time, I was living on East O'Keefe from East Palo Alto, down the street from the People's Computer Center. I hope somebody there um, talks for a while, at least a little bit, about PCC. But from that, it was clearly a pent-up demand for people having access to computers that wasn't being met by mainframes and main computers. You can actually make the argument that the Homebrew Computer Club and the, the companies and the products that the people who went to those meetings built created the personal computer revolution. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. It would have happened anyway, but, but I really do think that the, the style of those meetings, thanks in large part to me, uh, the open sharing of information that went on at the, home, at the Homebrew meetings was a catalyst that made that revolution happen sooner and happen more democratically. So that's all I wanted to say. Uh, I hope the rest of the session goes well, and I hope that those of you who aren't at Homebrew uh, get from this a sense of uh, how great those times were and how revolutionary they were. So thanks a lot. And now for something completely different, just talk. Just you guys tell us stuff about the club and did it change the world or not, or where is it now, or what did, how did it affect your lives, and do you want to? Give us the big chairs. The big chairs, but this will be seen. Yes, how about that? Oh, okay, the, this is, the hot seat is being. Throw that speaker up here. Okay, so here we go. the software. <laughs> That's already, oh, already reset. Well, that mic works too. Okay. Uh, well, um, if two people want to speak at the same time, so uh, this is wireless. You want to start out? Where would I? Okay. Well, um, as it's on. Okay. My, my policy is do not fix redesign, so keep me away from that. 
All right, so I've been handed a mic. This is, this is not unusual. So um, there we were in the garage. <laughs> and whose uh, garage? Gordon French's garage. And Gordon had uh, a shop down the street from the community computer center, which I think was something like Gordon's Speed Shop or something that had to do with slot cars. Everybody remember slot cars? I almost missed them at the time. And uh, and then he, I guess, uh, I don't know if it was he was there. It, it, it was maybe Hal Kaler, another home brewer, had, a, had his own kind of speed shop there with strange chassis and full-size cars being built. So I think either, I think Gordon hung around there and then he found this other place and Gordon was a computer programmer and had built an 8008 uh, personal computer we call the chicken hawk it resided in a kind of a suitcase arrangement and uh, so he was obviously interested and got pulled into that vortex um, I had been attending potlucks at uh, held Wednesday nights I think uh, at the uh, community computer center these were for those kind of strange people who thought that uh, there should be computers that people could individually own and use and that someday this would happen and they wanted to talk about what it would be like when it did happen. And it was a good place to trade uh, information and, and learn about whatever you had to learn about. I remember someone there was telling me, well, modems aren't so hard, you know, this is essentially all you have to do. Now this was someone who had dropped out of MIT and when you hear that word essentially in the mouth of someone from MIT you know much more difficult <laughs> so uh, but I didn't pay attention and, and uh, by uh, I went ahead and, and designed a modem um, the penny whistle but well, that actually got marketed through the club um, and Fred Moore I, I don't remember him being there for the uh, potlucks but he, he had his list building and so he got 30 of us to come to Gordon's Garage in Menlo Park, a look at a, an Altair, and then what? Well, you were there. I think we just merely decided to, to meet again. I, I wasn't on his list, actually. Um, I had wandered into, the, I think, the People's Computer Center. And I think that's where I saw a little flyer announcing uh, the first homebrew computer meeting. And I thought, that, that sounds like a cool idea. So um, I called up my friend and said, hey, we need to go. And we went. Um, listen, my, you know, the Humber Computer Club, it was a lot. looking just like this. It didn't look formal. We didn't have a formal undertaking. I think it was a hotbed for creative thought, the way it was kind of run without a lot of the strict rules of a lot of other meetings. It was certainly the finest social event of my entire life. I just lived for this thing, and I was, I was a young kid. I was a young kid and I was too shy to ever raise my hand. I'd done a lot of electronics design. I designed tons and tons more computers than anyone because I could never get the parts to build them and did it for fun. But I sat in the back row, never, never spoke out, never raised a hand. So interesting to listen to people and how they combine their thoughts for humanity and for people getting along and for you know some of the, the goodness of society along with the goodness of technology, how it's going to do good for us and how it's going to help us do good in other ways in our lives. So it was just hanging on edge, and I've never been attracted to a TV show so much. Um, it was really incredible, very much as the film pointed out. Uh, it was starting out with this idea of the, the hobby computers and the Altair computer, and now we could all own our own computer. And like Lee said, we all knew that we wanted to own our own computer. They were still expensive, ungodly expensive. Um, even the 400 bucks to buy this little kit here was 
not affordable to very much of us. We'd have to save for quite a long time. But that's a start. It's not quite the computer. You want a computer, you could type in programs and run them. And that's a long step away, and it was a lot more money, and memory cards, and modem cards, and serial cards, and buying teletypes, and it was almost unaffordable. But we still had, you've got to start out the seeds of where the world's going to go somewhere. And we were talking about it when all the big companies were dismissing it. It was kind of neat to feel that we were part, you were, while you were there, you were part of a revolution. Everyone talked like, we're, we're on the right track, and they're all missing it. The real professional, high-up world, the people who have the money, the people who have the know-how, and the experience, and the success, they aren't the ones who are predicting what's going to happen, that these computers are now going to be able to reach everyone because they're affordable, thanks to microprocessors. And that was um, pretty much what the club meant to me. Couldn't have really done anything without that. I got my start in electronics. Introduce uh, yourself. Well, I'm Michael Holly, and uh, I didn't join until about the first year of the Homebrew Club. I was uh, interested in, in building stuff with electronics, audio kits. Every issue of Popular Electronics would have uh, some kit, Electronics Illustrated, Radio Electronics, buy these magazines, and, and, and build a kit. And uh, in 1975, I got my uh, uh, first copy of, uh, or I got my copy of Popular Electronics. Okay. So, so in in, uh, in January 1975, I got my copy of Popular Electronics with the Altair computer on it. However, I did make it to Cuba. I bought it in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I got there on a Navy destroyer. I wasn't trying it in a canoe or anything. Okay. Yeah. And uh, in September of 75, I started going to the College of San Mateo. And uh, down the street from the College of San Mateo was a computer store. And I got a job down there assembling computers. If you wanted a computer, you needed a soldering iron. And so, uh, and, and there was a lot of people who, got, who were in the homebrew club doing that, building computers. Uh, and taking their pay in, in computer parts. And so that was uh, uh, how I got my start. Now, there's one fellow down here. Uh, I asked a question about RS-232, and I got an answer. Then I asked a second question, and he rudely interrupted me and vectored it off, I guess, to somebody else. <laughs> but the meetings there were... <laughs> no. Anyway, that, that was late. And later I moved to uh, Seattle, and... Uh, uh, the Northwest Computer Society up there had his brother, Joe, was, was up there. They were watching you. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the really nice things about the Homebrew Club is you could get, you could get information there. You can find the source. Uh, there was a guy, Bill Kelly, who came to the computer store and worked at Allied Computer Store in San Mateo. And he had an SDK-80 board that he wanted to hook up to our teletype. He was a marketing manager for uh, Big Ad Agency. He had the Intel account, and he had one he'd taken photos of, and he was warning out taking photos, and he wanted to hook it up to uh, Teletype to, to run it. And so uh, I did that, and he mentioned that he was also uh, uh, on the ad campaign for the Apple computer. And he had a prototype of the Apple II, and he wanted a power supply for that, and he traded me the SDK80 board from Intel, for, uh, and I built him a power supply for his Apple II prototype. And then I came to the Homebrew Club and I said, there's this tiny basic uh, in uh, Interface Age. Does uh, anyone have a, a copy of that in EEPROM? 
and it was written by, I think, Roger Raskoff, and he was in the audience and said, sure. And so I went by his house with a couple of 27 weights and, and got Tiny Basic. And uh, I still have uh, that, uh, that computer running, and Bill Kelly still has the Apple II with my power supply. How's this? That's fine. Great. Uh, well, my, I first got interested in computers at age six. Uh, I'm Bob Lash, and uh, I was exposed to a PDP-1 system at Stanford when I was six years old as part of an accelerated mathematics program uh, by Patrick Soupies and got bitten by the bug, and there was no turning back at that point. A heartbreak of early computer exposure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, by age 10, I was soldering flip-flops for Bert Lieb, who, uh, these, some of these wound up in, you may have seen at the Exploratorium, a sound tree exhibit where you clap your hands and a wave of colored lights go up the branches. Well, some of those boards that we were soldering uh, at age that's sorry, age 10 wound up. It's part of that exhibit. Uh, then, uh, when I was in high school, I was a student operator for the Palo Alto Unified School District's uh, HP 2000 Apple computer system. Many, some of you may have used that machine. <laughs> um, and uh, had saw a notice that was tacked up on a bulletin board, which I presume was put there by Fred Moore, announcing there was going to be a meeting of uh, people with like interests in, in homebrew in computing. Uh, so uh, by that time, I'd already been begun construction of my own homebrew system, which uh, we'll try to get a picture up on the screen in a little bit. Uh, this was a 12-bit mini computer uh, using a 30-bit wide micro control store, and I couldn't afford a microprocessor. The 8008 was way too out, way, way outside my budget at that time. <clears throat> I had three gardening jobs and was scooping ice cream at Edie's to pay for components. And uh, remember one night I came home with a little tiny bag of chips. These were 256-bit, here's the machine, 256-bit, not K, but bit uh, chips. And my mother, who actually is here today in the corner with my father, she looked at me with a sh and said in a shocked tone, is, is that what your month's pay just went into? <laughs> And uh, so here you can see, uh, if I may, uh, say, Lee, you don't have your stick to point with. I could what use that. Buy right now. <laughs> well, well, this might suffice. So uh, <coughs> here you can see the machine has, uh, there's uh, six general purpose 12-bit registers. So this was all made out of wire wrap TTL. Uh, there were 30 uh, toggle switches in these rows where you could toggle in the micro code uh, with the user-definable instruction set. <laughs> we'll punch a hole. <laughs> right. Good point. Uh, so the system uh, also uh, had, uh, you know, uh, 12 uh, input data switches, and uh, not unlike, uh, you know, something equivalent to say a PDP-1 or a PDP-8 today, or back then. <clears throat> um, the uh, teletype was constructed out of three junked ASR33 chassis that were given to me by a friend in high school and reconstructed the machine out of miscellaneous parts. Uh, if you tilted it just the right way, it would actually work. And when it stopped typing, you had to kind of stuff this uh, foam under the corner to get it to go again. 
Then on the right, the home brewer, uh, Carl Kelb, uh, gave me this uh, Burroughs tape drive, which was taken out of service, uh, I guess, in the late, early uh, 1960s. You can see the date code on this tape is 61. The oxide was getting a little bit old at that point and had a tendency to crack, as did one of the pinch rollers, which had to be remachined uh, in order to drive the tape in and out of the vacuum columns over here. And that was the interface to the machine. Um, it was a lot of fun, and this really was a what you might regard as a personal computer. Uh, and one, uh, shortly after the uh, first meeting of homebrew, uh, Gordon French came over to have a look at the machine. And actually, if we look at the next slide, here is Gordon's notes from that. Uh, <laughs> and Gordon was saying, a final note, Bob Lash invited me to see his 12-bit machine. And it really is a bit. He showed me how it could count upwards with one register and downwards with another simultaneously. <laughs> All this because it's micro-coded. Uh, especially considering Bob's age, this computer and its owner are truly remarkable. A very fine piece of work by anyone's measure. And then he was announcing that the next meeting uh, was going to be April 16th uh, at Peninsula School. And that's, I believe, where we then heard uh, Pool on the Hill uh, played, as you just saw it uh, today. Uh, so I went to the first meeting in Gordon's garage, and uh, thank you. And uh, people talk a lot about what happened in the garage. To me, one of the most interesting things is what was happening inside the house. Uh, Gordon invited us in to see his chicken hot computer, and this was an 8008 machine. But what was most remarkable about this machine, in my opinion, was that it had neither RAM nor ROM. Uh, he did have 16K of memory, but the way he accomplished it was by taking shift registers, 16K worth of shift registers, circulating his program and data in a loop, and the 8008 would idle and wait until the correct address came by, <laughs> and then it would read or write at that location, and then they have to wait again for the next. So it was quite, and yet it was run, I believe it was an ASR 35 that we had, a teletype. Uh, uh, it was quite impressive, and it worked beautifully. Uh, so I was just in total awe. I still am in total awe of this machine. Uh, really quite a legendary system. Um, <clears throat> so um, anyway, it was a great deal of fun. And uh, uh, after the first meeting, uh, oh, I should mention that um, one thing about the 12-bit machine is that later I added a coprocessor using a 6502 chip. And Steve Wozniak provided the floating point code, which I laboriously typed from his listing <laughs> byte by byte <laughs> and burned into ROMs. Uh, and, uh, but, but believe it or not, the 6502 was a great improvement in, in the mathematical processing power over my one megahertz uh, machine. Uh, so anybody else like to take the microphone? Or <laughs> Pointing out that in all fairness, the shift register idea was not so insane. That's how the Univac one worked, and that's how a number of machines like the IBM 650 with a, with a drum worked. You had to wait for the drum to come around with your stuff. So, uh, well, let's, let's not shout out numbers. The, uh, in in my, my own defense uh, about vectoring someone off, that's exactly what I did there. Because I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Maybe I'll just get to that eventually. But when I was running the meetings, I would tell people, "Don't come to me and said who asked me who it was that said this or that." 
And of course, I never had to say this, but of course, I certainly don't come to me and ask me how to do something. Um, you know, you guys hold all the the body of knowledge, and all I'm doing is keeping you from from blocking each other out. Now, there's still people who come up to me on the street and say, "You don't probably don't remember me. I attended the homebrew club meetings, and you were saying some really important things." Well, the first two or three of those, I said, "No, I wasn't saying anything. I was making jokes up front." I was stopping people from having back and forth conversations because you could see the lights go out all over the audience when that happened. And, and, and everybody whom I told that to went away dissatisfied. So eventually I, I figured out doing what I call giving a blessing. <laughs> and I just said, yes, we were all doing it, da, 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 you know, the sort of thing you can imagine. And in fact, we were all doing it. And, but I don't deny that they want to reflect their own uh, greatness off of me, because that's the job of the person who gets up front, and, and you've got to accept that. Um, now, now, I don't know if we're going to take questions here. Okay. Let's see if we got them. Okay, let's see. We'll have time, if you guys want. Uh, a couple of interesting stories uh, uh, at the homebrew club. Uh, one time there was a guy who was uh, probably going to sell something in the parking lot, and he'd, it was, uh, he was trying to sell some joysticks. And he mentioned that uh, the order was delayed because it was held up in customs because they thought it was some type of sexual apparatus. <laughs> and uh, so they, they didn't, uh, uh, so it was a delayed shipment on that one. And there was another uh, fellow that worked at the uh, computer shop with me that got a job at, at MSI. And then he got into EST. And years later I found out that, that was a company requirement, I think. If you worked at MSI, you were into EST. Yeah, we had a lot of humor in the club, and it was very enjoyable. That was uh, something that was all a big part of me. Anytime you did technical work, you had to have a lot of jokes to tell, or it just wasn't worth doing. And I remember, in the club, you could meet people, the old, old people, then, the very youngest, and we had some high school kids, and it was fun to meet them, and just start up conversations and find out you had things to talk with, about to everyone. Well, one of the high school kids got assigned the job of running our Tuesday night uh, chat sessions on a local call computer system, a time-sharing system, and that was uh, Randy Wigginton. Well, I went in and looked at the program in BASIC, and it used this file called Chadex. So I just dumped nine pages of Polish jokes into the Chadex file as soon as I could grab it, and everyone online would get all these jokes and just blame Randy for it. Let's <laughs> <laughs> um, to where I'm coming from here. When I was, when I first, I first learned about computers, probably by walking through a homeroom class in, in high school, and seen somebody drawing these weird pictures on a piece of paper and I asked him what he was doing and he said, oh, designing a computer. So I got this, I got into this not from point of view of someone who wants to change the world or even write programs. I wanted to design the microprocessors. So I owe this to him. He taught me how to design microprocessors. And um, afterwards he owed me because I got him two jobs based on that. Yeah. Um. Okay, so how about I get there? But I guess one thing I wanted to say was something that I think was influential in all of us getting there. I've only recently sort of figured this one out, and a lot of it is, is based on John Markoff's book, uh, What the Dormouse Said. Um, I have come to the conclusion that Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog were actually marketing personal computers for several years before they existed. They didn't call it personal computers. It was a very general kind of a set of ideas. 
And in fact, that's what you do when you're marketing. You sell ideas. Um, and I, without getting too argumentative about it, I just want to suggest people think about that. People who were there who had, at the time, how many of them had seen or in some way come across the Whole Earth Catalog? Yeah, see. Um, so I just put that out to think about it, that in fact, uh, the marketing effort started sometime, you know, five years before. What was their, their, their slogan? Access to tools, and then Stuart Brand had this longer slogan that some, I don't know when he, he gave forth with it, but it's like, we are as gods, so we might as well get good at it. Um, and of course, he is, as we can read from the Markov's book, he, he got the whole, the name, Whole Earth, in 1966 or so, or when he was <coughs> under the influence, uh, and uh, began to realize, hey, we haven't seen a picture of the whole Earth yet, and we've had satellites going up. Why not? So he, within 24 hours, he made up stickers of that with a, the slogan, why haven't we seen a picture of the whole Earth yet? And, and he then was selling them. And that got to the attention of the authorities, and an investigation was launched, and uh, the, the investigator came back and said, um, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with this guy. You know, he's he's a, he used to be in the army, and he's checked out. And by the way, why haven't we seen a picture of the whole earth? Um, all right, I'll keep running. The uh, everybody's got their story, and they and that's and they, somehow we should. I will try to learn all the stories. Um, the, what we did in the club was, that was the moment every two weeks when we all got together and exchanged information. And um, I brought to the club some, some ideas about primary and secondary information that I had, me and some others had been developing uh, in our explorations of what mainframe computers could do. And, and basically the idea is that Primary information is what you want to tell someone. And secondary information is the information you need to find out who it is you want to tell it to. And so that's how I structured the meetings when, when Marty Spurgell uh, thrust my name forth, I guess, in the, in the number four meeting. It was at, it was at the uh, AI lab, I think. I'm not sure. When Gordon had to go away. He had to go to Baltimore and do the job for the Social Security Administration. So it was like, who's going to run the club meetings? And, well, I, I didn't put my name forward, but Marty did it for me. Um, Marty Spurgell, the junk man, uh, who I think uh, played an important part in the, in the success of the Apple II uh, by marketing, daring to be the one who sold the RF modulators and, and, and made it stick. Anyway. Uh, I set up, a, I decided let's go around the room and find out some, a little something about everybody that they want us to know, and then we'll have a discussion period, and then we'll go back and, re and based on what we've learned, we'll do this again, and maybe we can iterate three times or something in the meeting. Well, never got finished with the first discussion period. Uh, that was the, the random access session, and the, the, well, there was the mapping session, not the napping session, as I would tell people. Um, and that was a, a, a you know, that process worked good, and I had to learn how to deal with an audience 
which is an interesting craft to learn. Um, and you get all kinds of people. Like Jim Warren from the back would be signaling me, you know, this guy's going on too long and so forth. Well, I had to, he didn't have any official position. Nobody did. Um, so you had to put up with that. So anyway, you could tell when the lights were going off, when people started having a yes it is, no it isn't discussion. And my job was to break that up. Um, now something else happened which was really important, I think, because for a while we were having speakers uh, at the meeting, at the first, you know, first half hour. And sometimes the speakers wouldn't show up. What do you do then? So I just said, okay, the topic is such and such. Who here knows something about it? And someone would raise their hand and I would call them and they would tell their fact. And then that would cause somebody else to raise their hand and have an, and hear another fact or a disputation and a, a finer point to put on it. And we, several times, created a lecture from the audience. And of course, we were used to that kind of people in the audience talking. Um, I mean, this, this, and at the third meeting, at the, at the, which was at the Peninsula School, um, Gordon French was trying to hold a lecture on computer science. And half the audience was out in the hall, including me. <coughs> and I sort of noticed that what was going on in the hall was everybody was meeting everybody else and you know, exchanging that sort of information. And I figured this is the process we need to bring into the meeting if we ever get a chance. <laughs> and, and we did. Uh, and so that's sort of what made it work. When we incorporated the club, uh, I don't know if that was 76 it was, yeah, 1976, because the papers say that. Um, I had to sort of, I had a hard job up front because everybody wanted to either move into the mode of being a parliament or something. And I had to say, this corporation is just a paper construct with five people's name on it. It's there you know, to, to keep problems away. It's not the structure of how we do things here. And finally, I had to say something like, this is my show, and if I decide to, I'll take it on the road or something. Um, I'm not at all sure if I had left that anybody would have gone with me. But you know, sometimes you have to say these things. So we had a structure, a corporate structure. And, and if you want to win a bet, but if you don't care if you make the other person angry, um, there's a trick question, which is, how many members of the Homebrew Computer Club were there? Okay, well, we know there's a roll of teletype paper that states from 1978 with 3,000 names and addresses on it. But these weren't members, because legally speaking, the only members of the club were the board members of the Homebrew Computer Club, a 501c3 nonprofit California corporation. So the answer is five. <laughs> um, and some at, at a hackers conference many years ago, we had this sort of find out who was a member of the homebrew club, and I had to spoil it for them. <laughs> I like. Uh, we have a birthday cake somewhere out there. Can someone go find it just so that we have it ready for when we want it? A birthday cake search. Find it or its remains. Ellie, <laughs> well, you share a few thoughts in me. Um, especially, I remember one time you got up to the microphone, you said, so this is, tech, so technically this is not a corporation, and every single member applauded. I think 500, 550 of us fit in that auditorium, but 
that's the number I always like to think of. It was kind of nice that it wasn't structured parliamentary style because, I mean, I wanted to show stuff off. The, the club, to me, everybody was t talking about, Lee, the way you ran it was stand up, tell somebody if you have some information, something to share, and somebody will spot you to get together in the random access period and get together with you and get your information, get your parts that you have to offer, whatever. Other people would stand up, I need help with this and that, I'm doing, here's the state I'm at and something's not working. Somebody would spot you and get together later. So we didn't, and it really kept the meeting moving very quickly through a lot of topics. But afterwards, you know, so I got in this habit of, well, this club is really to give things away. Publish, code you wrote in the newsletters. Um, just, I would just bring my TV and set it on a table to show people during the random access period. I didn't have to fill out forms. I didn't have to ask permission. I didn't have to pay some money for the table rentage. Any one of those things would have stopped me. I would have been just way too shy and scared to get involved with something like that. But it's just better set it up and people come by and see what you got. And that was really uh, kind of the, 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 the main thing that made this club work so much differently than any other club I've been near in my life. And why did this one work better than all the others? Some of them are here. The people who constituted it. Um, and it, Okay, now we're getting the cake. Um, what was the point I wanted to make, but I'm getting old and I forgot it. Uh, I've seen a lot of organizations fail because because they were organized. And when, when there's organized, there, there's sort of something at stake. And um, people think they need to be in control. But if there's nothing there to be in control of, then nobody really cares. And it just seems to ramble along just fine. People who really want to be involved get involved and stay involved. That's, that's a nice way to run a club. I remember. Oh, I remember what I would say at the beginning of the meeting was, the Homebrew Computer Club does not exist. That would always get a, a, a cheer. Well, also, I mean, you know, as a feeling of openness, I remember with the Apple computers, I would just pass out the schematics, the listings, I mean, build your own. Trouble is, by the Apple II, I didn't pass them out because nobody really wanted to take 40 hours to build their own. There was a lot of time to solder the chips together, and, you know, by then we had a PC board we could sell, and about to sell a, uh, you know, another, sell the Apple I, like, completely built PC board. But it was, uh, a lot of people didn't really want to spend the time that wanted to get Sure, maybe maybe a tenth of the people in the club, tenth of people in the club, wanted to do this. Just build everything from parts. It was the cheapest way to do things. Somebody else was talking about uh, having a serial memory. Well, good, good lord, on the Apple One for the video display, I used serial chips because I looked through the back pages of some catalogs. What were the cheapest memories you could ever find? And they were these <laughs> dinky little ship registers that had nothing but one bit in and one bit out. So it was really to say the lowest cost approach there was. And yes slows things down, but God, it was people like that were scrambling to build their own stuff. But then there were 90% of the members of the club wanted a computer, but they just didn't want to go through that much building. That hadn't been their, their upbringing. Why did you pick a 6502? <laughs> and why did I pick a 6502? The story's very well told. Sure. Couldn't afford an 8080. They said it was 400 bucks, and I was scared to even ask. There were no stores that sold microprocessors. When we started the club, there were no stores even a couple years later. Um, so where do you buy one? You'd have to go down to a distributor and fill out some forms like you were a company, credit history and all this stuff, and I didn't know what that was about. Well, I found out that the company I worked at, Gila Packard, had a microprocessor deal, a, a Motorola microprocessor, 6800, for 40 bucks. So that was affordable, so I designed the computer for that. And then an unknown company starts up selling the best microprocessor, because the latest is usually the greatest and best, and a few more transistors on it, um, the 6502. I looked over its specs compared to the 6800, and it had a bunch of different addressing modes, where the 6800 might have had more calculating instructions. 
But to me, the addressing modes were much more important. I'd grown up on some of the beauty of the IBM 360, where you could never generate an address. All you could do was add numbers to a register that the operating system gave you that had an address in it. So uh, I liked the 6502 the best. And then they had a show in San Francisco, the Westlawn Show. And you could walk into a room with a $20 bill, put it down the counter, and get a 6501, or 25 bucks would buy you a 6502, which the only difference is it had a little transistor amplifier in for the clock signal. It was built into the 6502 for five bucks more. And you could just buy it. There was a way to buy it. That was the most important thing of all. So a lot of us from the club went to um, that Westcon show and bought our first microprocessor, the 6502, the start to where we could all build a computer. I seem to remember they had a, a fishbowl full of chips, and you could just pick one out and buy it. Well, I chip. Yeah, and at, at the time, all this time, there was there was folks in the ivory towers up on the hill, Xerox Park, and so forth, working on stuff that a lot of us did manage to get in the back door and see, and it had big full screen bitmap, full page bitmap screens and fonts and uh, Ethernet and so forth. And oh my, wouldn't it be nice to have this? But we couldn't have it. We couldn't officially get in there. And so we had to go pull chips out of fish bowls and wherever we could find them uh, and, and cobble them together. And for, for quite a while, um, the, 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 the folks on the top tier, uh, and it's not just Xerox Park, there's a whole stratification sort of thing, um, could not figure out what we were doing and why we were doing it because these weren't real computers, good heavens. Um, well. They were computer enough for me. They're, they're, they, were, they were enough hard work, you know, <laughs> and held this. Chuck fell over what? I don't think he came to the Homebrew Club. He might have, like, once or so. Might have even showed off the pet computer. I know he came by the garage looking at early prototypes of the Apple II, and I'd run a bunch of color demos and all this, and eh, he went back to Commodore and said, no, you don't want color. You don't want fancy good keyboards. You don't want slots and lots. You just want the cheapest, cheapest, cheapest that anyone will take, black and white, and text and a crinkly keyboard and it's all price. But then again, they had to build in a TV set and our apples at least used your home TV, which was free. We were the cheapest. Good Lord, I didn't have the money for an assembler and I suspect there were a lot like me. When you bought a microprocessor, you got a little card with it that said for each instruction what ones and zeros it would create for you or what hexadecimal you would create. And, you know, I definitely am one of those would be and uh, I mean, 16 is a good number. Four, it's two to the four. The four is a good number. Three is less less binary to begin with. Two to the third. <laughs> you know, and uh, so, <laughs> and, and a byte is a six. Six, that's two hexadecimal digits. So anyway, so hexadecimal. Every time I go to a hotel, I look at the room number, and the room number tells me if it's a good room or not. I don't look at the inside. <laughs> I could care less. And the last time I went, my friend got the good room. What was it? It was 427. Two squared and three to the third. Pissed me <laughs> off. I had 429. But uh, I would, uh, yeah. But the microprocessor would come so hard. Well, a lot of people, I'm sure, in the club were like myself, could not afford a time-sharing account to run an assembler so you could type in your machine language program and get the ones and zeros back. We had to do it by hand on paper. The entire code, all the way up through the Apple II, never ever was written anything but totally in my own hand, right down to the ones and zeros that went into memory that made the processor do its stuff. And that's the sort of, that's the way things were back then. Gotta remember, I mean, there were, this was a world when uh, um, things were kind of tiny. I couldn't even put a prom. The largest prom I knew of was a 256 by four bit, two chips add up to 256 bytes to put into 
the Apple One, just so you could type on a keyboard. I want to take this opportunity to make a, a statement here that I've wanted to make for a while. In my view, certainly at the time, uh, Steve Wozniak was the best all-around hacker that we knew about. So, this guy is a real person. I'll go further than that. He was also the fastest, most accurate typist I've ever seen. And the only reason anything ever got done is because he could type reams of hexadecimal that you'd set up at the back of, of, of Homebrew, and he brought an Apple, I think it was an Apple, it was Apple II, and he was, he was typing in basic, yeah. in hex. 4K bytes in 40 minutes, but just high school, high school, I took typing too, and was faster than the girls. So the reason that I think Apple, the Apple One, got its disassembler is because I tried typing in hex, and I'm not nearly as accurate. <laughs> so, and it was just an incredible pain to type all this stuff in and then search through and figure out where you mistype something. So I wrote a disassembler so I could read it. Yeah. Alan Sutton rarely gets noted. He was the only other um, actual en computer engineer on the Apple Two. And the Apple One computers came up with, uh, he started writing the original code for a disassembler. And these were very important routines to people that were developing code. And also came up with some hardware ideas that really gave the computer huge advantage. Here we got a computer with tons and tons of slots. And on every board, you have to dial in an address. And it has to have comparator chips to compare the address and see if it matches for that board. Now we came up with the idea of just pre-decoding it on the board. Send it to slot. It's already done for, you know, one chip will do it for eight slots. That's unfair. But on the other hand, that's how we got things done. And you always wanted to have the, uh, the opposition say, that's unfair. Um, also an observation here. Uh, hexadecimal is the, language, is the language you use when you're typing. Octal is the language you use when you're co toggling switches, because your three fingers are about the same length, and you can't hit a switch with a little finger. That explains it all. I think we have, I'd like to suggest a, 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 a comment here from, from a distinguished visitor, uh, Kevin Crunch. Steve, when did you uh, use the uh, cross-assembler on call computer? Remember, you'd go to call computer at the terminal lab there, and we'd print out the, that listing. And that listing wound up in the red book, as I, I, I think. Remember that? You, we ran this program. I don't remember using an assembler until after we, right around the time we were putting the Apple II out. Right, that's about the time. That yeah, do you remember yeah, when it was? I remember, I remember I called computer. You had, you had an account on call computer. I had an account. Right. You sat down the floor one night and typed on the, logged in under with one of my little terminals, and I watched your hand, and your password was W-E-R-E. Right. So Steve Jobs <laughs> and I went down to call computer, and we, we tried a couple combinations of characters and found out his password. There were all of John's files, and the last one was his resume. And we were going to stick in some notes on it about the um, your rest, but we didn't. Yeah, this is the real stuff. He also remembers his hotel room number, right? No, his friends. Okay. I guess we should take some questions, maybe, because unless the moderator says otherwise. Well, um, is this is this the map or the random access? This is, nah, this is uh, something else. <laughs> so this is, we're going to do something, discussion. something completely different for 10 or 15 minutes, and then we're actually going to have this cake cutting here for to actually celebrate the birthday of the club. There are no plates, though. There are no plates, so it's like, <laughs> you, have to, you, have, you just have to put your face down into it anyway. So back to...
All right, if it's back to me, I'm going to say, what do you have? Say it loud. And why did the Apple One cost $666.66? Our reason goes back to um, humor. I had started the first dial-a-joke in the Bay Area ever. You met a lot of people in your life that have started companies, but this is the only one you've ever met that started the first dial-a-joke in any region. And uh, it cost a lot of money. That was back when you could not own an answering machine. You could not own a telephone. It was not easy to do, and it was very expensive. Even with a job as an engineer, I'd get three months behind on payment for the machine and have to give it up to the phone company uh, after a couple of years. But that number, that was a, uh, so many people got wrong numbers. Whoever had a number similar to Dial-A-Joke got 100 wrong numbers a day. And I would change the number and change, and I found out 255-6666, the first good number of my life. To this day, I have great numbers. 888888888, I can't use it for any phone calls because I get 100 calls a day from little babies that can't talk pushing the eight button. But, uh, so I was into repeating digits. And then we came up with Steve worked the deal to sell these computers um, uh, at the wholesale price to the store for 500 bucks. What should the retail be? Add a third on. That puts it about 667. Well, I said 666, because it's all one digit. To me, that was just an easier way to type. The double makes it easier. <laughs> we, didn't know, we didn't know what the number had religious. No, no theological symptoms. Oh, <laughs> There's lots and lots of stories you could tell about, about Dial-A-Joke itself, because he got so many calls that I think he wore out several answering machines. Yeah, well, I'd always make the phone company bring in a new answering machine and stand out in the rain, and I'd give him a book called, I'm sorry, Monopoly was out, it's not in service. <laughs> yeah, the funniest one was, was when the when, uh, machine broke, and they said they'd come, and they didn't, so he, got, he had a sort of homebrew answering machine he built and put on a message that said, sorry, that old joke is down. Please call the phone company to complain. Yeah, for three days in a row, they'd come before I got home from work. And I didn't want them in my apartment without me there. So I uh, called 611 when I got home from work the night they were going to come because I put my answer machine on telling all the kids, hey, if you want to hear your jokes, dial 611 and have your friends call too. So I called, dial, I called 611 and I said, I have a complaint. And they said, I know, dial a joke. I said, how did you know? I said, every other call today has been for Dial-A-Joke. I really felt I had the most called number in the United States. Um, short little Polish jokes I told. Polish-American Congress Incorporated threatening with a lawsuit for defaming people of Polish descent. And I said, what if I switch to Italian jokes? And they said, that's fine. This was, this was before political correctness. What? Well, a joke that I don't consider um, ethnic, but uh, people will be offended. What do you call what do you call four Mexicans in quicksand? Cuatro cinco. <laughs> Another question? Yes. Stand up, please. Sorry. I recall the Homebrew Society got a reputation as a forum for software piracy. Oh yes. And Bill Gates or somebody complained about it. I remember that, yes. Uh, okay, here's, here's the short form on that one. So we were, everybody saw this article, you could have a mini computer for $397, all right. And a lot of people ordered it, and then they got it, and they built it, and then what they had was this, although without as much inside. And then, so what does it do? How can you make it do things? Oh, something called software. But don't worry, you can buy the basic, which lets you, you know, write your software for only $500. <laughs> well, we were less than thrilled by that. And uh, the story is researched about as well as it can be in, in Markov's book, so you can read it there. But a, a copy of the paper tape turned up, 
uh, at one of the meetings. And of course, a lot of us had access to teletypes and could reproduce paper tapes. And the only decent thing to do was to share it. Because uh, your computer wouldn't do anything without it. Now you could, you know, click the switches and so forth so you put grooves in your fingers. Um, but this is the real stuff. And this is, we felt that, you know, software is the, is the additional component that makes the computer work. And, and, and this wasn't even literally an application. So basic is not an application. It's a language. So it lets you then write code. So there was a great feeling that uh, not only had we paid the $397 to the company, all of us had put in an awful lot of effort. I mean, my estimate is it cost you about $3,000 to get the Altair finally put together and so forth. And God knows how much of your time. And uh, so we had a lot invested, and we, we weren't about to let ourselves get jacked up for another $500. Now, the thing I have to say about this is, and from the standpoint of history, um, okay, so a certain number of copies didn't get paid for. But when National Semiconductor came along and said, okay, we want to, you know, we want to license a basic, what's the most popular basic? Everybody said Microsoft Basic. Now, if I accept the, the standpoint that Bill Gates was making, this was going to put him out of business and destroy his future. And you know I think it's a damn shame. The kid could have made something of himself. <laughs> Well, Dan Sokol actually borrowed a tape from our library, and he, he went to work at AMI, and they had a duplicator, and he brought back something like 20 copies of it. And, and they, he said the rule now is if you take something from the, the, the club library, you have to return at least that many copies. <laughs> and then, well, then, well this, this basic by Bill Gates influenced me hugely, too. Because, you know, to me, I've been since high school, I told my dad, I want a 4K Nova computer. I can run Fortran. Of course, you have to buy the memory. It will come with enough memory. 4K is what you need. And you have, to, you have to get a teletype to be able to type in. There's a lot of cost to get up to the machine where you can type in a basic game. So um, it's not like a $400 machine. $400 Altair is really just a microprocessor with the, um, the, the buffer chip so you can plug boards onto it and turn it into a computer. It's a very weak starting point. Um, but the basic had come out. Now, I never programmed basic in my life. I always wanted to write a Fortran compiler. I was a scientist. And basic wasn't our language. But here there was a book, 101 basic games. And that was what people would want to do. People like we're in our club would want to do with the computer. You know, and I had a few little computer jobs I did at Hewlett Packard designing calculators, and I wanted to be able to do those simulations and needed a basic. So basic was the right language. So I actually had to open up books, learn the language basic, write my own syntax diagrams, and then, then learn to figure out how to write a basic language. I didn't I'd never studied writing basic computer languages other than reading a few uh, documents Alan Bell sent me from when he attended MIT. Anybody who had anything interesting would, would you know, a program they had written 
would try to make make it available either as a listing or even as paper tape even before that. So the fact that somebody was was trying to, to actually charge for software was pretty alien, I think. Right. That that's that point is made by uh, by Steve Levy and, and the book Hackers. It's like the culture of hacking included sharing all of your information. And if this was in a well, a people can afford it should really pay it. You know, but yeah. people who just are are you know don't have any money and you know trying it out, that's just not valid to charge for. It. You're not getting something out of it. And they wouldn't get the money anyway because they don't have money. Are you back? We're back. I'd like to make a quick comment about BASIC. Uh, while it's true that uh, numerously duplicated copies were useful for the folks who were running the 6502, for those of us who had 12-bit machines that were incompatible with everything, <laughs> we had to write our own assemblers and compilers. Now, uh, I wrote both an assembler and compiler for the machine you saw it, but uh, BASIC I wasn't entirely satisfied with. I also liked Fortran, I liked assembly, so I created a high-level language called Fable which is an acronym for Fortran Assembly Basic Oriented Language, and that's what was running on the, on the big machine. Keep in mind, the Apple II was the first time Basic was sold in ROM. You flipped a machine on feet, type in Basic. I mean, that was that, it was that important. You had to have a computer language to be really a complete machine. Okay, crunch. Zaltair. Zaltair. Talk about Zaltair. 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 <laughs> and I looked, I looked down and saw that Nick who made the altar wasn't going to be at the computer fair. So I, and I got on the phone to a friend in Los Angeles. He went down to somebody who could type in and prepare these brochures. And we printed uh, 8,000 on different colored papers. I mean, I came up with the money barely and to pay for it. We kept it so secret. And it just had all these data about a great computer and comparison chart to the, the to the inside computer, to the Apple computer, to the polymorphic Sol, to the uh, the Sphere. Had all these comparison charts, and I made up the numbers and, and had I had the dumbest I took the dumbest ads I could find to copy off of. I I made it complete enough to say things like Cyclelac is a trademark of Board Warner Corporation on the back, and and up at the top I put in a fake quote in italics, supposedly by the president of NITS who made the Altair. But if you took the first letter of each word, it would spell out processor technology. Another company, because I learned early on, always make it look like someone else did it. You get <laughs> <laughs> and nobody at the Homebrew Computer Club the next day, they were waving these things in the air saying it was a hoax, but nobody had figured out, they had found out that the quote added, the dumb quote, predictable refinement of computer equipment should suggest online reliability, something, something. <laughs> 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 it was so dumb a quote. Nobody figured out it was the first letter, so Gordon French came by Apple to do a consulting job, and I said, that, I think I heard that, he said, I know who did it. And I sat there kind of trying to hold my chuckles, you know, mm -hmm. who? And he says, it was Gary Ingram of Processor Technology, or some name like that, because he has a weird sense of humor. And I'm just laughing and laughing. I said, I pulled it out and said, I heard there was a quote here that you could take the first letter of each word. There was a cipher. And we all did it right down to Steve Jobs saying the Y at the end of Processor Technology. So I'm sure they were convinced that he did it. <laughs> <laughs> you could also send in your old, your old Altairs and your, your mid-680s, another worthless computer, to get this new, hot, beautiful Zaltair. 
And that evening wore on, and then the pictures emptied, and some of the lies would get actually more truthful. <laughs> the second thing was that we, you were frequently talking about community memory. And um, I remember you talked about it a number of times. And it was supposed to be something where you would log on and find out about, about upcoming shows or something that you could read about in the newspaper, or you'd um, find out what the hours were for the library or what the directions were that you could find out yeah, I want to make sure that, that credit goes where it's due. Ephraim Lipkin uh, was the guy, uh, sort of a partner of mine in that case, who actually came up with the idea. Because the group I was with, Resource One in San Francisco, had managed to score a whole big mainframe. And in fact, it was the 940 computer that that Doug Engelbart had just got done with and returned to Transamerica Leasing. So we wound up with this huge computer, and we wanted to kind of do uh, do something, uh, you know, counterculture things with it, but nobody was ready for it. And so finally, uh, Ephraim came up with the idea, why don't we just put it out on the street so people can use it like a bulletin board and see what happens, and then we'll have something. Because we had done written a, a, uh, an information retrieval system. It was a rather good one called Rogers. Um, and so we wound up putting that out in a terminal, a teletype in uh, Leopold's Records, which was the student-owned, uh, a student, uh, government-owned store that had been set up to drive prices and records down. It worked fine. But we had a, we had a teletype there and uh, on August 8th, I think, 1973. And we found out that people really took to it because we did not interpose ourselves between them and the, and the terminal. They could walk up to it, stick their hands through holes in the muffler that I had built for the, for the teletype and start using it. So it was an experiment in uh, direct computer usage on a public access basis as a bulletin board. And a theory was that that would be transferring secondary information. Remember that? And then for primary, you just go to the call whoever it was, because the phone system worked fine for that. Anyway, um, it's not a linear progression to the, and nothing is a linear progression in this field. Like ideas come and sort of bloom and, and then wither, and then somebody does something because they sort of half remember about the other one. It, 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 the historians of technology have got a really difficult problem trying to draw nice maps. But that was, an, that was something that, that uh, certainly opened my eyes when I saw people who just did not expect a computer. And if you told them there's going to be a computer there you can use, they would shy away. Because everybody knew computers were big, evil, awful things with big flashing lights and they always blew up. 
uh, at Ampex and uh, overlapping a few years in the special products division. So it was like, you know, you don't ever want to get anybody really ticked off at you because you're going to come around later and <laughs> have to get a job off of them or something. Uh, okay. Can we take, take another one or two questions? Or Oh, actually, you know what we have to do? We forgot to have you sign the releases. So do you all agree? Oh, I'm not going to sign anything. You'll <laughs> hear from my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so do you all agree to have your words etched in stone forever? Aye, aye, aye. Aye, aye, Captain. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we got a hand. Yes. Stand up. Captain Crunch here, and I guess Mr. Wozniak, too. Um, is there any relationship between the blue boxes and the Homebrew Computer Club? No. Along the same lines, uh, I'm wondering if any of you recollect a publication called The Telephone Electronics Farm? No. Hey, you really? That's just a rumor. I don't think they were legally blue boxes. They were, they were touchstone tokens instead of yeah. the MTS tokens. Yeah, that ain't the real thing. Okay, uh, I just want to, if, if there's no more questions, I have an aphorism. Um, I remember a, a, an obscure story by Woody Allen uh, that I read in Playboy in the 60s or something. And it was about the history of tin ink blocks. These are actually novelties. You could get these little stamps things that look like ink blocks. And he said, something I, I, I find very useful, I should have it up on the wall, I certainly remember it every time I design anything. The first 10 ink blocks were clumsy, ranging to 11 feet in diameter, and fooled no one. Well, we could kind of say that about our, the stuff we were starting to work on then, but we soon got it so we fool people. Okay. So, uh, so I want to thank everybody for all this energy and our panelists and the Computer History Museum and the Vintage Computer Festival and Eric for getting this work in. And uh, it's all going to be on the web at www.digibarn.com. Every year we do a 30th birthday of something, and these guys were figured this is their time to have their birthday. And we do what we do with that is have a cake because you can't have a birthday without a cake. So uh, this cake up here, uh, which uh, there is uh, enough for, I guess, about 15 people, or maybe <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it actually is the cover of uh, the newsletter number two with Fred Moore, little armband there. And, and a couple of things it says is uh, Intel and Altair and, and sharing, resource sharing, it says, on the cake, because it was on the newsletter. So we thought, what a, what a good thing to do. And it's uh, carrot cakes because the nerds have since got into a little bit healthier eating. <laughs> and uh, with that, also, uh, if uh, you want to see the speakers uh, after we do this cutting uh, uh, outside, we're going to sort of set up. Salam sort of has an area set up if you have things to get signed or whatever. But uh, what I want to do now is uh, 
just sort of uh, who who wants to uh, who wants to cut uh, who wants to do the first cut? It's gotta be Lee. It's gotta be Lee. Okay. It's gotta be Lee. I'm we're going to do a fractal cutting scheme. <laughs> divide by in half, and then the next one will divide half of that in half, and work it down, and then we'll work it back out, right? Okay. So. Okay, so there. Okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. Oops, drag a little bit of the tape out with it. Sure, please. Continue it all the way through here. Actually, before you leave, I want to make some announcements. So please stay because it might be something you're interested in. For those interested in doing the Nerd Trivia Challenge tomorrow, we're just going to hold sort of a qualifying uh, roundup. And uh, let's do that at 3.30. So if you're interested in uh, trying to qualify for the Nerd Trivia Challenge, which is a trivia game show we hold tomorrow, uh, hosted by Evan Colblance, then please meet us in the back of the exhibit hall at 3.30 p.m. The other announcement is um, our guests are going to be available to sign stuff in the back of the exhibit hall as well. We'll have a table set up there, and we'll uh, expect you, of course, to line up neat and orderly and uh, not mob uh, the poor guys. Um, let's see. We have, um, in case you haven't noticed, there's a bunch of, uh, bunch of swag on the uh, tables uh, near the uh, registration desk, there's uh, free Intel booklets courtesy of the Intel Museum um, and posters and things, so feel free to take those. And um, we have catalogs from CyberGuys, one of our sponsors, CyberGuys.com. And uh, let's see, what else are we doing? The screening for the DBS documentary is happening in this room. Jason Scott's going to be in here, and uh, he's going to be uh, running different episodes from that film, uh, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it yet, stick around. He's also around the corner selling copies of it, and I also highly recommend um, uh, you buy a copy if you're interested in DBS history. It's really well done. We recently lowered the price to 40 bucks. He's going to be screening in here. A future pinball screening has been postponed, and that's going to start probably in another half hour or so, and then we're going to run the, um, the uh, Walking Rainbow documentary right after that one is out. Um, DT1 is being demonstrated in the next room over, so you can go check that out. I highly recommend that as well. And uh, I can't think of anything else that I can highly recommend at the moment. Uh, so uh, the exhibit hall is open. Go up there and enjoy all the old computers and stuff. And thanks very much for coming. And thanks to all our panelists. Let's give everybody a big round of applause. You've been listening to DigiBarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the Digibarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.